From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. But the thing is that Yemen had many woes before the war. We were a poor country before the war. We had a weak infrastructure before the war. There was a lot of poverty. But the thing is that the war came along and made everything much, much worse. And uh, nowadays, for instance, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to find any job inside Yemen. The medical facilities that you just mentioned and you talked about, the thing is that they were really bad before the war. And whatever little we had was decimated by the war. March 26th marked the fifth anniversary of the Saudi-led war on Yemen. This week, we speak with Hisham al-Omaisi, a Yemeni activist living in exile in Egypt, about the ongoing war in Yemen and the possible outbreak of COVID-19 in that country. Later in the program, Yemen's aides Summer Nasser joins us to talk about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the organization's awareness campaign on the coronavirus. Stay with us. March 26th marked the fifth anniversary of the Saudi-led war on Yemen. In the past five years, the impacts of this seemingly unending military assault has been mostly felt by the country's civilian population. Millions of people have been displaced, nearly 14 million people are at the risk of famine, and 80% of the population rely on aid agencies for food. According to the aid agency Save the Children, more than 85,000 children might have died of hunger alone since the bombing began in 2015. The country has also suffered high rates of communicable diseases, including cholera in 2017, followed by diphtheria and dengue fever. And now the UN is warning of an imminent explosion of coronavirus cases in the country. I spoke with prominent Yemeni activist and political analyst Hisham al-Omaisi about life in Yemen and the potential outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic in that country. Yemen has been called the hidden war, the forgotten war, the invisible war, because it hasn't been getting that much attention. And now with the whole world being busy with the the coronavirus and the pandemic, there's going to be much less attention to Yemen. But luckily, the corona hasn't arrived in Yemen yet. Are you certain about that? Well, we're almost certain. The thing is that we don't have that many testing kits in Yemen to begin with, and the health infrastructure is devastated since before the pandemic. So we're not quite sure. But uh, so far, the WHO, um, UNDP, the OCHA, they've all confirmed the lack of cases in Yemen. According to the UN, an estimated 19.7 million people in Yemen lack access to basic health care. Only half of the country have health facility. True, very true. And actually, that doesn't even begin to paint the actual picture. The Saudis have also systematically targeted health care, health infrastructures of the country over the last five years. According to a new report, between 2015 to 2018, Saudi Arabia attacked 120 medical facilities across 20 of Yemen's 22 governates. I'm not sure about that, the actual statistics of it. But the thing is that uh, it would be harsh to say it's just the Saudis. All sides have attacked medical facilities in Yemen. 
Every side in Yemen did that, including AQAB and including the Houthis and including the warring factions inside Yemen, the different parties. So everybody shares the blame. So tell us a little bit more of what is life like for people in Yemen. A lot of people think uh, Yemen was devastated by the war, which it was, of course. But the thing is that Yemen had many woes before the war. We were a poor country before the war. We had a weak infrastructure before the war. There was a lot of poverty. But the thing is that the war came along and made everything much, much worse. And uh, nowadays, for instance, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to find any job inside Yemen. The medical facilities that you just mentioned and you talked about, the thing is that they were really bad before the war. And whatever little we had was decimated by the war. We are a country that depends a lot on uh, imported uh, medicine, on imported food. And, of course, with the war, there was not just a blockade. There was a partial blockade. But the thing is also you have one warring faction basically controlling one part of the country and uh, other faction controlling another part. And uh, there's a lot of um, basically blockades across the roads where you cannot deliver medicine from one area to another area. And, I mean, for instance, we get a lot of shipments through Hudeida. But it's, uh, the thing is that then you need humanitarian corridors to deliver them from Hudeida, from the seaport, to other inland parts of the country. Can you give us an overview of the configuration of forces and the events that brought Yemen to the current state? The thing is that it was a lot simpler at the beginning of the war because we only had a handful of factions. And uh, it was basically grouped under two sides, pro-government and pro-Houthis. And in the Houthi camp, there was a GPC, which was led by the ex-president Saleh. And you had multiple tribes underneath that, multiple other parties underneath that. But the thing is that even though we had two major groups at the beginning of the war, the longer the war continued, the more factions started uh, coming to the surface. And there was uh, basically a splintering effect and now you have pro-government factions, you have pro-southern factions, people that call for secession in Yemen. And within the pro-secessionists, you have multiple other factions. You have factions that owe allegiances to certain governorates rather than entities or factions. You have people in Al-Mahra, for instance, they're calling for more autonomy in Al-Mahra. And you have the pro-government faction, for instance, again, going back to the pro-government, you have people that owe allegiances to people in Marib in Al-Jawf, which is another governorate, in Al-Sada, which is another governorate. And it's just kept splintering over the past five years. And now you almost have about 30 factions inside Yemen, which is making it much, much harder for peace deal to stick because you have to bring all these factions to the table. We'll talk about the prospects um, for peace in Yemen, but United Nations has been asking the warring factions in Yemen to silence their guns because of an imminent explosion of COVID-19 cases. Is it even possible, as I said, that there are no cases given the ravages state of the healthcare system? According to the World Health Organization, WHO has distributed about 1,000 COVID-19 testing kits to medical facilities across Yemen. And so far, only suspected cases who have symptoms and a history of exposure are being tested. And this is nowhere nearly enough where you could test every suspected case that walks into a hospital. Actually, I, I sort of agree with you because there's a lack of enough testing kits to begin with. And because of the current um, the status of the health infrastructure, it is very difficult to ascertain 
that there are cases to begin with, and if, even if there are suspected cases, to test them. You're talking about Yemen, a country that is still being in the middle of a, a war, and that the priority is giving to the places in the front lines, that the medics are put on the front lines, not in the cities. And uh, if people walk into the hospital, they'll be just basically shoved aside. The, the priority is for the fighters, to treat the fighters. So you have a lot of complications that would make it very difficult. Even if there was an outbreak, we will realize it at a very, very late stage. I read that 50,000 children die in Yemen every year. Why? Okay. Um, unfortunately, um, they die you know, because of preventable diseases, because of malnutrition. And the thing is that uh, they don't die directly because of the war. They're not killed. But uh, it's almost the same. They die because of diseases that are easily preventable. You could provide families with food and they wouldn't die. You could provide them with vaccines and they wouldn't die. It is very easily preventable. But we lack the capacity. We lack the aid to save those children. I mean, you have UNICEF, you have the OCHA, you have a lot of other organizations working in Yemen, but it's still not enough. There was a donor aid conference, um, I think it was a few months ago, and uh, the UN has this plan, the yearly plan, and it's always like 20%, 30%, 40% funded. It's never, ever fully funded. So here's the thing that I learned the hard way in the past five years, is a pledge is one thing, allocating the money is another. Hisham, in recent days, authorities in Yemen seems to have taken steps to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Both the Houthis and internationally backed government, they have both halted flights. They have urged travelers to self-quarantine. They have shut down schools. Can you tell us more about that, how the country is preparing? And also, what are activists doing on the ground to inform and educate people? The thing is, I think... Um we got to the realization early on that uh, we have a really bad healthcare system, or whatever is left of it after the five years of war, and um, understanding that the only uh, way to combat the coronavirus is prevention, basically. We started going out to people, speaking to the people, and you've, you've probably seen it on social media and in the media as well. Every faction was like, you know what, just tell everybody to stay home, tell everybody to wash their hands, and educate the masses. Uh, we have a high literacy rate in Yemen. So a lot of people went to the rural areas, inside cities, inside markets, and started putting posters to educate the people. And we took to the airwaves, basically radio, in places like in Sana'a and Aden and elsewhere. And uh, we started basically blasting all these messages, um, raising awareness. And the government itself, well, the multiple governments in Yemen, through uh, the areas and Hadrami areas and... Aden and Hudaida, they started uh, basically taking steps themselves and limiting travel, shutting down certain ports, basically suspended flights, and now they're monitoring cer certain entry uh, points into Yemen. Because so far, we still don't have officially uh, announced the corona cases inside Yemen, and we are really trying to keep it that way. I saw a heartwarming post on Twitter that said two decades after its closure, 20 Yemeni ladies revived the war-torn country's oldest factory to make face masks in anticipation of an outbreak of the new coronavirus. That was actually a really nice initiative, but it was a community initiative. Um, that factory 
was basically outphased a uh, long time ago. And we were actually very surprised when they got it to start a game because everybody was like, the equipment is really old. And even, we don't even have the spare parts. But the ladies got together and um, was supported by some businessmen inside Sana'a as well. And they basically uh, jerry-rigged the factory. And they got it to work. And they started manufacturing masks. And it was applauded by everybody. This is one of the things that make you proud of that community. We are a very uh, closely socially, uh, closely knit uh, community in Yemen. And when we want to, we know how to come together and make miracles. And I also saw a picture of several women standing outside of a prison in uh, Aden with photos of their sons demanding their release because of the looming outbreak of coronavirus in that country. Now, the pictures that you saw is just uh, but one instance. There has been uh, multiple um, similar demonstrations across Yemen, in Ta'iz, in Hudayda, in Sana'a. They basically all, it's, a, it's an organization called the Mothers of Abdekti's organization. And they've been calling for the release of prisoners. And the thing is that uh, having witnessed this happen in other countries where an outbreak in a prison was devastating, we were trying to basically preempt this. And like, you know what? Offer a general amnesty, which is a win-win situation. You would come out as being a benevolent and you'd also save lives and you'd release prisoners and it shows a sign of goodwill. So it's a win-win situation. So we're trying to capitalize on that, basically on the pandemic, to pressure the different factions to release prisoners. The same efforts are going on in um, San'a and other parts of the country as well? Yes. What about people who live in refugee camps? To begin with, they don't have any access to water, health care. Some of them live in no man's land. What about those people? Sure. What's the situation like for the internally displaced? We almost have 3.5 million internally displaced in Yemen. And unfortunately, the situation is pretty bad in those camps. And if, um, God forbid, corona arrives in Yemen, those people will be the hardest hit because they live in tents, basically, in the middle of nowhere, a lot of them, not mm -hmm. most of them. But so, some of the camps are better than others. But generally speaking, and there's no way to help them. We basically don't have the capacity, nor does the international organizations operating in Yemen. So let's switch gears and talk about the war a bit. Houthis have opened up a new front line into the Yemen's Ma'arib governorate. Houthis control much of the northwestern part of the country. How significant is this development? The thing is that uh, the UN envoy was actually pushing for some sort of a a ceasefire and building on uh, an agreement they had in Hodeida, the Stockholm Agreement, which prevented a war inside Hodeida. And we were hoping to build on that. But the thing is that the agreement started falling apart. And in the midst of that, there were a lot of military deadlocks in the north, beginning from Nehm, which is north of Sana'a, the capital, and Al-Jawf, which is bordering Nehm. And in the past few weeks, with the uh, Basically, the fallout, or the beginning of the fallout in Hudaydah, the Houthis started pushing in the north as well, in places like Neh. And they quickly took over Neh. They quickly took over Jov, and now they're moving towards Marib. This is a very significant and major escalation. And also, this is an oil-rich area. Yes, it is the oil-rich area, and an area where it has a lot of IDPs as well. And the problem with that is that most of the pro-government forces are basically focused in that area. 
And uh, with this recent escalation, the whole peace process is being derailed, which is why you've probably seen the UN envoy and other parties, international parties, have been quick to call for a de-escalation. Because if, you, if you're going to have a war inside Marib, it's going to be bloody, and it's going to be devastating, and it's going to be one of the last uh, pro-government bastions. And uh, that will basically not just derail, but probably basically end the peace process. How does that change the political map in uh, Yemen? Well, the Houthis are going to come up top. The Houthis have already controlled Nehem, which was controlled by the government just for the, until past uh, two months. And now they controlled Jov last month, which was again under the control of the government. And if they control Marib as well, then there isn't much left for the government. And that's going to create basically, the Houthis is not just coming on top, they become the major player in Yemen and with very insignificant presence of the government inside the country. The Houthis have always wanted to have a stronger hand when they come to the table. Before any negotiations, they would push ahead in certain fronts. But the thing is that because the government is not really that well organized and that there was a disarray inside the house of the government, let's say, the Houthis capitalized on that and they pushed forward. And the government's house of cards, if you will, fell apart. How much of the country's real estate is under Houthis' control right now? Uh, it's a good thing that you ask that question because that is a bit misleading. When the government, for instance, says, it keeps repeating that it's in control of 80% of Yemen, what they actually mean is land, 80% of land. But that is insignificant in Yemen because it is not land as much as population. Exactly. Because Yemen, a big part of it is just basically empty spaces. The government controlling a completely empty space is meaningless. What matters is control of cities, major prominent cities. The Houthis have been so focused on not controlling land mass as much as controlling cities, which is why they control the capital, they control Amran, they control Sada, they control now Al-Jawf, and maybe soon Marib as well. What about other forces like Ansar al-Sharia, also known as Al-Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula, ISIS? Well, that is actually one of our biggest fears. Uh, the thing is that uh, with the current power vacuum, they've been able to infiltrate multiple areas. They don't really necessarily control areas as much as infiltrate them. And they're now present in multiple areas, not just one area. And that's not just Ansar al-Sharia, it's Al-Qaeda. And in Yemen, we never had Islamic State in Yemen, but for the past few years, they've been spreading inside Yemen. Can you elaborate on that a little more? For instance, they go into a certain village or a certain district, and they start working with the locals, with tribal sheikhs, and they have a certain understanding that they would live in harmony in that area without disturbing the peace. And as soon as they strengthen their ranks, they start more or less control the area, but indirectly, not like before when they took over cities, they realized that that strategy is, uh, is a bad strategy because as soon as they start controlling whole cities, then the whole, the whole international community is alerted and they want that city back, like what happened in Mukalla last years and when, what happened in Aden and what happened in uh, places like Abyan. As soon as they start controlling you know, a whole province or a whole major city, the army comes in and the whole international community, they're like, no, we can't have that. But when they infiltrate and they live side by side in, within other communities, then it's not as annoying as much. It doesn't basically doesn't raise the flag. If we look at the map of Yemen, can you tell us which forces control what parts of the country from the south to north, east to west? Well, let's talk about west. West is mixed control between the Southern Transitional Council, which is the southern forces, basically, 
and Houthis, Hudaydah, there is like Hudaydah, for instance, and Hajjah. And if you look at the north, north of the north, this is basically pretty much Houthis, because you're talking about um, Sada, you're talking about Amran, uh, you're talking about Hajjah as well. And if you go east, then you have the mixed group in the east. You have places like Marb, which is under the pro-government forces, and the Hadith forces, basically, and Al-Arada. And if you go way east, you have Al-Mahra, and there you have mixed control of local factions, Maharis themselves, certain uh, pro-government forces, and certain STC forces. And if you go to the south-south, the southern trenches of council, places like in Aden and in Abiyan. All of the um, warring factions have been engaged in serious human rights violation. Human Rights Watch has documented arbitrary arrest, torture, enforced disappearances, and illegal transfer of detainees to Saudi Arabia. There have been similar charges against Houthis. In fact, a couple of years ago, you were abducted by officers from the Houthi-run National Security Bureau. Can you talk about your own experience? What happened to you? The thing is that there have been massive human rights violations in Yemen by multiple factions. You talk about the control. We lost control of the state. And you had all these factions, all these militias, basically, who had zero respect for human rights. And uh, you were treated, one faction would treat the other as a complete enemy. And they would imprison you without due process. They would throw you in a filthy cell. Uh, they would beat you up. They would sometimes beat you to, the, to death. And this has been documented by multiple organizations. And uh, it is not exclusive to one side or the other. Everybody is guilty of this inside Yemen. And uh, when you said about my own experiences, uh, okay, I was kidnapped and I was forcibly disappeared. But uh, this was in Sana'a. And uh, the thing is, there are p- people who have suffered far more than I did. And I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to play the victim here. And uh, I don't want to exaggerate what happened to me. But a lot more people suffered a whole lot more than I did. Can you tell us about the human rights violations across the country? This is what we've been screaming about for the past five years, is that this is not something exclusive to the Houthis or the SDC or Hadi. The various factions of Yemen, they don't tolerate critique at all. So they would either imprison you or assassinate you or torture you to death. And this is across the board. This happened to me in Sana'a. It happened to a lot of people in Aden. It happened to people in Marib. Here's the thing. It's like we, we, we're fed up with this system that uh, you're being kicked to the ground and you're not even allowed to scream in pain. Can you also talk about the media landscape in Yemen? What type of pressure independent journalists are under. Define independent because there's very, very, very few of those <laughs> back home. The thing is that because of the war, because of the polarization that happened, the media in Yemen is partisan, extremely partisan. And this is why Yemenis started uh, using social media. They're like, well, we're not going to depend on local media anymore. We know that all these outlets are basically exaggerating. They're being weaponized to misinform. So we use our own networks. And this is why a lot of people started depending on me for news when I was on social media. And one of the things that actually angered the Houthis when I started speaking, and everybody was like, you know what, Hisham is a very credible voice. Let's hear it from Hisham. And that annoyed a lot of people. And same thing happened to other people on social media. Activists, journalists, opinion shapers, influencers that were taken, and they're still forcibly disappeared to this day. And how difficult is for uh, reporters 
to enter the country and what challenges do they face? Because in the past several years, there have been a number of journalists from international media outlets who've been able to get into the country and travel, mostly in the Houthi areas, of course. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, it is extremely hard. And uh, journalists actually go through a lot to get access to Yemen. And some of them actually, they sneak into Yemen. And uh, what they do, they have to have like, that's like it's, it's, it's a difficult network that you have to work through to get the necessary permits to travel to certain areas, to get access to Sana'a, to get access to Houthi-controlled areas or government-controlled areas. And often they do that and they sneak without knowledge of the authorities, the local authorities. And it's a huge risk. And luckily, we didn't have an, an incident and thanks to a network of support inside the country where there was no incident when somebody, where, where somebody was harmed, kidnapped, or killed. And when they do, the, the, on the rare occasions when they do get access in, into the country, their movement is limited and the information that they get is also limited. But it's enough to highlight what are the problems we have inside the country. Where do you go to get accurate information about what's happening in Yemen? Contacts, basically contacts. Over the past five years, we've had credible voices come on social media. Some of them are actually actual, actual journalists. And we use that network of contacts to get information. To wrap up, I wanted to ask you about the future of Yemen. There have been a few peace initiatives. There have also been reports of secret negotiations slash meetings between Saudis and Houthis. And in the meanwhile, the war continues and the civilians are paying the price for this unnecessary and absurd war. Where do you think Yemen is heading? The thing is that I think uh, we've reached a level of fatigue inside the country and outside as well. Well, the international community is that everybody's fed up with this war. And even the warring factions are starting to realize that this is not a sustainable situation. And uh, they're losing support, even the factions. It's becoming extremely hard for them to recruit people inside the country, which is a good thing. And uh, we're hoping that with the current corona pandemic, everybody's going to be calling it quits, at least temporarily. And with a temporary truce in place, with uh, some sort of um, reprieve, we would have everybody, everybody working together. On combating the corona and that that just that might be enough to pave the way for everybody to continue sitting on that table and figuring out a peace plan because people are just tired and they're running out of resources and they really desperately need peace what gives you hope about Yemen that people now even the people that initially joined sides and were highly partisan five years ago you speak to them today and they're like I don't support any party anymore I don't care what started the war. I just need it to end. And I don't care how it ends. I just need the guns to stop. That gives me hope that people have, have reached to that point, to that breaking point that they no longer want the war and they want to end it at any cost. The youth in Yemen, they inspired people throughout the Middle East with their activism. The youth activism in Yemen, in spite of the dire circumstances that the country is, is experiencing. Well, the thing is that um, we took to the airwaves, we took to social media, and uh, we tried to make a difference. We tried to raise awareness, we tried to create uh, movements, but then the war basically took precedence, and it's like everybody was worried about the war itself. 
and a lot of the youth joined the warring factions, and very few independent youth kept being independent. And um, a lot of them actually gave up and left and sought asylums abroad. A lot of them left the country and living in exile. And right now what you have inside Yemen is not the youth anymore. It's the elderly. Take me for an example. I'm out of the country. It's my parents that are back home. And similarly for a lot of the activists or journalists or influencers or what have you, they're outside the country and they're starting new lives. And how are you guys helping Yemen from the outside? What are you doing to support people in Yemen? There are several tracks that we actually do that through. One of the main tracks, for instance, was um, focused on sustainable development. We're like, okay, don't talk about war. Let's talk about projects inside the country. Sustainable small projects like greenhouses. Let's build greenhouses in certain communities. Here, let's raise funds for that. That's one track. The other track is let's raise awareness on other things than just the war. Let's talk about education. There are lack of schools in certain areas. Let's raise awareness there. Let's try to help build a school there and help that community. Because that community is fed up with the war and the war on factions. They just need people to help them. Let us be that vehicle, that vehicle of help. That is one track. The third track is, you know what? Let's try to encourage these leaders or so-called leaders or the warring factions or warlords that, you know what? That war is going to end one day or the other. Why don't you sit to the table now? Let's encourage peace. Let's give them incentives to come to the table. Encourage them. And let's bridge um, between one leader or the other and help them open channels and talking. I remember for, for the past 10 days, for instance, we've been trying to reach out to some of the leaders and saying, listen, if COVID comes in, it's not it's going to decimate the country and it's going to kill people who are even closer to you. So you're not going to look weak if you come to the peace table now. You're actually going to look strong. You, you look caring. So there's an incentive. And something else that has been happening in Yemen, which is very interesting and hopeful, is the booming of solar sector, which is transforming the lives and the energy sustainability in Yemen. True. That was almost for the past two years with the lack of electricity. I mean, yeah. the, our national... Only, because only 10% uh, of the population has access to electricity right now. The thing is that uh, not everybody can afford it. You're talking about IDP camps. There's a lack of solar systems in IDP camps. It's only some of the privileged that can afford solar systems. You're talking about a country that is very, very poor. Not everybody can afford uh, solar panels. And when you yep. say it's very expensive, can you put it in perspective for us? I'm from a well-off uh, family, and I actually had to save for a few months before I bought a so those solar panels and the system for my house. So you can imagine the poor families, how long they have to wait or save up when they, when, they, when they actually they can't, they live on daily wages. So they can't save enough uh, to buy a solar panel. The system costs about $2,000 for my house. There's a smaller systems, but again, even if it costs even $100, which is, of course, you're not going to find a solar system for $100. But even if it did, you're talking about um, the average salary of a Yemeni is $20,000, which is $30, but 20,000 Yemeni reals, which is $30 per month. And they, they, they virtually have no savings. So they cannot afford those systems. So what parts of the country are using solar panels? Mostly the capital, because it has a lot of rich people, places like Madhab, again, because it's the only rich government right now. But if you go to places like Amran, if you go to places like Sada, Sada actually is a little bit well off now after the Houthis took control. But if you go to places like Hajjah, places like Hudaydah, 
Not everybody has solar panels. Before we wrap up, do you have anything else to add, Hisham? One last thought. The thing is that we're trying really hard right now to activists, influencers, journalists, uh, pretty much everyone. We're trying to pressure all the warring factions to basically accept some sort of a ceasefire for the greater good. And there have been some positive uh, feedback from, uh, from the warring factions, the police, the uh, Yemeni government, the STC, and everybody else. They're like, okay, we're willing to pause, which is a, is a pretty good thing because uh, for the past few weeks, we've been trying to de-escalate. And now we're getting to a point where we might actually successfully convince everybody to actually pause the hostilities. But it's going to take, it's not just locals. There needs to be also international pressure for this to materialize. And before Corona hits Yemen, where it's going to be too late. Hisham Al-Omaisi is a prominent exiled Yemeni activist and political analyst living in Cairo. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
In recent times, Yemen has faced countless problems, but the ongoing war in Yemen has worsened the situation for the civilians in the country. People in Yemen face famine and children are dying of malnourishment. There is a shortage of medical supplies and many hospitals and clinics are forced to shut down. Since 2016, the non-profit organization Yemen Aid has been working to provide much-needed humanitarian assistance and resources to the Yemeni people. I spoke with the organization's chief executive officer, Samer Nasser, about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the current challenges Yemen and its people face. Yemen Aid um, essentially focused in the beginning of uh, the unfortunate uh, conflict in 2014. We were established in 2016. We worked on food insecurity projects. Then we moved over to wash programs, water and hygiene. And then we moved on also to health development, creating just unique sustainable projects for Yemenis as a whole. We've tapped into all of these different sectors and we continue to work on them um, until today. I guess the most important thing that we've really noticed is that Yemenis are facing a um, really, really horrendous crisis, and it really needs uh, innovative ideas to tackle them and not just short-term urgent aid. Mm -hmm. Specifically, they need to be sustainable at the end of the day. We need to, you know, help themselves as well. So that way when we're gone, you know, we, we left something for them to continue. The health system is deteriorating uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, before even the conflict in Yemen, the public health sector in general was very poor. It's obviously much more worse now given the situation that we're dealing with. Uh, I recently came back from Yemen in August and um, I visited, uh, my focus was really on the health sector and I visited a couple of hospitals and I can tell you that what's happening in these buildings and these health facilities are something that you really can't imagine, um, not, not enough even for me to even contemplate. And so they're missing the basic necessities, even certain, um, you know, machinery just to test the blood out, um, you know, certain items that they need just for labor and delivery. Um, there's just so much, even electricity is just powerless. There are people who die because the electricity shuts off in the middle of, of the day doesn't help them with oxygen and just just a horrendous I, I wish no one goes through this of course so we focus on it we are Yemenite specifically loves to tap into the health sector because the need and a lot of INGOs should focus on that more we've recently established the first breast cancer clinic mm -hmm. in one of the provinces in Yemen Lahaj. we've also helped hundreds of or I would say a good ample of hospitals um, across the country um, through tons and tons of, of medical supplies and medication through partners here in the United States. Um, and we tend to work with the Ministry of Health to understand their needs and how we can broadly approach those needs to the resources that we have here in the United States. And bringing in the voice of Yemenis to the U.S., their needs, we also want to make sure that it's specific to Yemen's situation and not just any other situation. So we, we work in, in various ways um, in the health sector. I read that um, it's a shocking figure that 50,000 children in Yemen die every year. Can you tell us a little bit about children and what they are going through and what was your own experience visiting these hospitals? It's the first thing I would say to highlight is trauma. Uh, I'm going to be very honest. It's trauma, trauma, and trauma. I, I was also um, 
stuck in the war as well mm-hmm. uh, in 2015. And so I was also very traumatized, and I can only imagine what they go through on a day-to-day basis. Now, the children specifically, they go through multiple things. The trauma is the first, the lack of education, because, again, school used to close, and they still close till today, depending on the, the conflict on the ground. We have even children um, letting go of education because their first priority now is making sure that they support their families with food on the table, if they even have that opportunity, which is unfortunately very rare. We have also seen that um, children have lost their friends and their family members due con- to, you know, to conflict. And so they feel a sense of hopelessness. I'm going to be honest, the generations have been lost because of this conflict. And um, our role here is to kind of push uh, a, a sense of hope and a sense of um, just a glimmer of support that we can do to kind of have them think about other things. So, for example, I know in, in Yemen, we've done educational development and support through social um, so, so social psychology uh, mm-hmm. projects, and so just to kind of get them out of that that little you know that little room where it's really dark. And so, fifty thousand, yeah, unfortunately, fifty thousand are being reported that they're that they are dying because of lack of food, because of lack of medicine. Yeah. And so it's really unfortunate that it's continuing this way because it's basic necessities. It's not complicated. And it has to do also with the economy. I mean, the economy has totally deteriorated, and parents and families have no way of access to financial means to support their kids. I'm really glad you spoke about mental health because we pay very little attention to mental health services, which um, are, I assume, they're barely in existence in Yemen. So what's been yeah. done or what your organization is doing to provide sufficient support for children? So we this year we started on really funneling a project with a local organization in Yemen um, for students who have been um, trauma, you know, traumatized. Um, and they're usually kids uh, who are in really elementary and middle school, essentially. And um, what we do is we give them activities to do. We talk about, you know, just the, the conflict itself and a sense of hope. I, again, I'm not, you know, I wish I, I was a social worker of some sort, but mm-hmm. I left that to the professionals. And what I found is that when you give kids activities to think about other things other than bullets or bombs or whatever it may be, it changes their development and their moods. And, and with this war, obviously, it's really you know, hindered the development of these kids, and not just these kids, but also the generation to come. When you, you know, when you're having kids growing in conflict, I expect negative implications on these children. And so, we funded that. I honestly, we would love to continue to to build that type of program across the across the country. But yeah, unfortunately, social workers are not given the right, you know, uh, tools in Yemen. There's not serv- there's no services you know by government to mm. to support them financially. There's no facilities. I mean, if there is any, maybe one or very little, very minimal. But it's a sector that a lot of people do ignore, and not for anything, but it's just because there's so many different areas that we all have to fill that we can't keep up with everything. Mm. You know, and this is where I really welcome any organizations that are specifically specialized in these types of sectors to really focus because when we as an organization focus on multiple things sometimes you know we tend to spill over a little bit too much so specializing in certain things can really um, help the need much more better. In 2017 
Yemen experienced a devastating cholera epidemic. And now there are warnings by World Health Organization of a looming explosion of coronavirus cases in Yemen. How is your organization preparing for a possible outbreak? And what can be done? Yeah. Well, as you know, the coronavirus pandemic is, is hitting every country around the globe. And I'm speaking to you from New York, where it's one of the hot spots and the largest numbers um, in the United States. And I can tell you that since there are global shortages across the globe, even by INGOs, that we, as much as we want to support them, um, support Yemen, support any country for that matter, um, with certain items such as masks or mm-hmm. ventilators or um, any medical um, protective gear, it's very problematic because we, the whole world is looking for them. You know, they're countries, governments, states. Um, but for us, what we're doing is we're looking at it through a local approach. So first of all, awareness is key. I mean, when you're talking um, to countries such as Yemen and, you know, Syria and such and such, uh, you do have to make them aware of what this virus is, how do you can, you know, how can you catch it, God forbid, and also um, how do you prevent them? And so who are the risks? Who, who, who are the vulnerable groups that are in concern? Because, um, you know, Yemen's population is around 70 percent youth, which mm-hmm. is interesting. But there's still a good number of elderly um, and they're really old and they, they, they are not aware. You know, sometimes they don't have the literacy rates that we would like to see. Um, so awareness is one. The second is even looking at it through a local approach, like I said. So looking at who has the supply of masks uh, on the ground. Um, how can we even work on work with people on the ground to create these masks if there's a global shortage? You know, start thinking from within. So this is what we're doing for now. We don't have any cases in Yemen that are officially um, registered, um, but that's because there's you know there aren't enough tests in the country, right? There's the machinery think, is not there. I think uh, uh, World yeah. Health Organization announced um, recently that they have sent 1,000 test kits to Yemen. 1,000, and you're talking about a population of almost 30 million people. I mean, it's nothing. It's a pin in a haystack. And to be honest with you, based on my conversations with those on the ground and activists on the ground, they found that very unfortunate and almost... Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to dismay the support, but I would say they would think that it's merely not enough, and it shouldn't even be given at that point if it's mm. just 1,000 test kits. I, I mean, I know a few people on the ground in Yemen that um, have those the symptoms of you know corona. You can tell, but they just don't know where to get tested, and they end up self isolating at home. And so, I know that also WHO of some or any you know a UN NGO also sent out ventilators, and it was less than 100 ventilators. That ventilators are key to survive this, especially for immune suppressed people. So, no, it's not enough. And um, to be honest with you, we can't depend on INGOs at this time as much as we support their you know their efforts. Mm. But there is a global shortage, and so how do we tackle corona? I mean, this is a problem. Even my worst fear, to be honest, is that it'll spread like wildfire in Yemen and we can't control it because there are certain mechanisms that need to be placed in the country that are still not being placed. You know, ministries of health across the country have a needs list and they're not being fulfilled. And local coordination and higher higher up coordination, including government, is not being done. And so we know that to prevent the spread, 
and Yemen, it needs to be through isolation, through quarantine, through shelter, you know, shelter at home policies and regulations. And we don't have that in Yemen, unfortunately. Is your organization involved in information and education campaign? Yes, we have started already. Um, we started actually last week uh, mm-hmm. some awareness campaigns. We've also we we work closely with the Ministry of Health. We have a very good relationship with them, given our focus on the health sector recently. Um, and we've distributed masks to the Ministry of Health, and we're we're also distributing N95 masks to certain hospitals across the country, including quarantine locations that are going to be placed. When uh, you say when you say Ministry of Health. Because there are yeah. different forces in control yeah. of different parts of the country. Right. So mm-hmm. you deal with each of these entities separately? Um, yes, because, uh, well, we work with, our, our organization is licensed by the, what you call the internationally recognized or legitimate government. And so that's our official license on the ground by the Ministry of uh, Planning and International Cooperation. Mm-hmm. That's usually central south side of Yemen, I would say. On the north side, we do know that there are um, groups such as Houthis. Um, unfortunately, Houthis have created a lot of challenges for INGOs, and this is being sent out as complaints from all INGOs, including UN agencies, um, that they're hard to cooperate with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We work with what we do to avoid this type of challenge, even though we are a Yemeni-American-based organization. We work with local organizations and third parties on the ground to avoid this type of conflict or deliberation between the groups to avoid. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to help people. We're not here to, you know, support anyone at that matter. So we avoid it by speaking to those on the ground that can implement the projects for us. So basically, the Ministry of Health direct conversations with with, with the legitimate government, yes. With uh, On the north side, we usually just go to the third-party, um, you know, local organizations to have them give us an input, and we work from there. Given the fact that the whole globe at this point is under some type of shelter in place, and some countries have completely shut down, they're in lockdown, how has the situation right now impacted the delivery of aid to Yemen? This is a great question. It has hindered our work. And I'll tell you, even from, um, you know, borders are closed, as you said, and uh, the travel of aid is being suspended or really, really scrutinized at this time, even the fear of spread. And as much as I understand that, but at the same time, you still have people that you have to support. And not just borders, and countries, we're talking even banks and financial institutions where they, due to the economic instability right now, they're afraid to let money travel from bank to bank to different, from different countries. And so this is impacting our work in Yemen as well. And so we're trying to go around those challenges to the best of our abilities, but it's really, really hard. I can't lie to you and tell you that it's been smooth. It's been very challenging since the early March. And um, how we're doing it now is we're utilizing our resources and our network to conversate between other organizations to see how they're doing their work. Um, and a lot of them are facing the same challenges. And what are you hearing from, from people and activists who are working on the ground in Yemen? Well, Yemen, um, as you know, since 2015 has been cut off from the world in many different ways. 
you know, due to politics of, of such. And that's obviously um, been going on for a couple of years. And unfortunately, Yemenis, as much as I don't want to see this, but they've been normalized to this new reality of their lives. Mm-hmm. And and it's a sad reality. It's something that we always say it's not normal. But even when we send aid to Yemen, it has to go through checkpoints that normally weren't there, even on sea. And so it was already challenging enough during the before the COVID epidemic or pandemic. And now it's even worse because at the end of the day, everybody's being more strict about what comes in. The personnel, even the people who are coming in and out of side of the country, as you know, flights have been stopped in Yemen as well. Uh, airports are shut down. I mean, I've, I even know people who are trying to get out of the country, even nationals from the UK and the US, and they're not uh, able to. And I can only imagine what Yemenis are going through when they just and they're Yemeni citizens. So it's impacted everything. It's mm-hmm. impacted the life of Yemenis on health and health. It's impacted them through goods and services and also impacts them because at the end of the day, when corona hits in Yemen, and unfortunately, if it does, and I hope it doesn't, but if it does, it will spread like wildfire and there's nowhere to go. You know, mm-hmm. they're literally stuck there. I know this is a very broad question and it might be difficult to answer, but what is the Yemeni American community in particular, and more broadly, the Arab community in the U.S. is doing to help people in the region and try to provide support in these very, very dark times? Yeah, very unprecedented times. The Yemeni American community, from what my understanding is and my conversations with Yemeni leaders in New York City, California, just yesterday, and in Michigan, the Yemeni Americans, including um, other organizations, we're working together now to start campaigning for raising funds towards the fight against corona in Yemen and also here in the United States. Given that we are Yemenis, but we're also Americans, we do have our role to play. Mm. And so with Yemen, of course, we'll do what we can. We'll get the support that they need in terms of the items, like uh, masks and things of that, and hand sanitizers and hygiene. These are really important to prevent um, any types of spread. But in the United States, I know even Yemenis, um, Yemeni Americans in their businesses, they've been supporting their local police departments, their local hospitals, and giving out masks and hand sanitizers and such. So we try to do the both, and, and hopefully we can continue to work for Yemen through these fundraisers, and it'll, it'll definitely kickstart within the next probably week. Samer Nasser is the Chief Executive Officer of Yemen Aid, a nonprofit organization that is providing much-needed humanitarian assistance and resources to the Yemeni people. You can learn more at YemenAid.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.